0: Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Revelation 4. And also, turn them over to Revelation 19. We're actually going to start in Revelation 19, then we'll come back to Revelation 4. Revelation 19, and then be prepared to head back to Revelation 4. We come uh, this morning to address the issue of the rapture. I thought we might as well go ahead and hit it. Let's talk about it. Uh, Many of you have already asked me where I stood. Well, hopefully I'll bring some measure of clarity to this. We want to discuss, is the rapture biblical? If it is, when does it occur and why does it occur? Um, As I've told you before, as we go through the book of Revelation, I'm not going to give you all the various views. Uh, I'm just going to give you where I land on this issue and uh, even as we begin to discuss these things, I, I want to share with you, I come to this with a great deal of humility. I know that there are a lot of scholars out there today who do not agree with me on this, where I stand personally. Uh, in fact, even in the commentaries I'm studying, I've learned that I'm kind of in the minority uh, on this issue. And most of, I would say all these scholars are probably way more knowledgeable than me. Many of them spend a good bit of their lives studying this issue so having said all that, just know I come with a lot of humility. As best I can, I've sought God's word. And, uh, and through the, um, the power of the Spirit working in my life, uh, this is where I stand. So I just bring it forward to you with a lot of humility. And then finally, let me encourage you with this. Study it for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody else's word for it. Uh, you must study the word of God on your own. You, you know my prayer is each week that our time together in God's Word just causes you to want more of God's Word throughout the week. And if that's not accomplished, then I've missed you know, my goal. So I want to encourage you again. I'm going to share with you several uh, passages of Scripture, many of which will be on the screen. You need to jot those down. You need to go through and read those yourself. We believe in what we call the priest to the believer. You got as much of the Holy Spirit in you as I got in me. And you've got the Word of God, the living Word of God. That's the beauty of this. You get to go to it, and you get to read it, and you get to study it and say, God, what, what are you teaching me? And this is no small matter. You need to know where you stand on these things. Now, the, the, there's a danger in some. They get so caught up on these things that all they do is they're just obsessed over these end-time events, and they forget we got some work to do. Um, But you need to study these things. You need to know what you believe, and you ought to know why you believe it and how to defend it. So I'm going to do my best to give you where I land on these things this morning. Let me just pray. We're going to need the Lord this morning, so let's pray, and then we'll look at these passages. Father, we're just so grateful that you have spoken to us in your word, that one of the blessings of being a part of your people is that we're able to know not only what you've done, but we get to know what you are doing And we know what you will do in the future. And so, Father, we thank you that you have revealed these things to us. This morning, though, Lord, as we turn to your word, I just cry out in desperation, I need you. Lord, I pray often that there would be a whole lot less of me and a whole lot more of your word and your truth. God, I just pray that you would let my word just kind of fall by the way. But this morning, we we claim the promise that your word, it never returns void. And so, Lord, I pray this morning we would look to you and your word, and by means of your spirit, you would encourage us, you would strengthen us, and, Lord, you would prepare us for your eventual return. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me at Revelation 19. We're going to start with Revelation 19 verses 7 through 8. We got to fast forward a little bit here because I think it sets the premise for what we're going to look at at the rest of this. We're kind of addressing this first question, what is the rapture and is it biblical? That's where we're starting. What is the rapture and why is it biblical? Well, if you look at Revelation 19:7 through 8, it says, "Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready." Who is the bride of Christ? That's the church. The church is the bride of Christ. And it says it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So this is the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there is the bride of Christ, the church, in heaven with Christ. And then look down in verse 14 of chapter 19. This is the return of Christ. We're fast-forwarding a bit. But in verse 14, Christ returns. Here he comes, and who's with him? In verse 14, it says, And the armies which are in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Now, who did we just read about that was wearing fine linen, white and clean? The church. So here we see Christ in his return, and who is with him? The church, his bride. You know, a lot of people ask me, will we see uh, the second coming? Folks, we are the second coming. We're coming with Christ. We will ride with him on horses. You don't like horses? You better get over it because we're going to be riding them. And we will come with Christ as he descends from heaven. So here's the question, though. This is the reason I wanted to go to this. If the church, which we see here, I see very plainly. If the church is in heaven and if the church is coming with Christ when he returns to the church, then the question must be, how'd they get there? If they're in heaven at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and then the church is coming with Christ as he returns, at some point they had to be taken up into heaven. And then we have to ask ourselves, does the New Testament uh, teach us about a time when the, the church is caught up into heaven? I believe it does. I want to give you some verses and passages of Scripture again. Go read these things for yourself. You need to look at them yourself. But John 14, you're going to see it on the screen. You can turn there in your Bible. You should have time. John 14 Verses 1 through 6. John 14, 1 through 6, a passage that you're probably all very, very familiar with. Jesus, speaking here, says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go away to prepare a place for you. And if I go away to prepare a place for you, I will come again to do what? To receive you to myself, that where I am, and where is he? In heaven, you may be also. Very plain to me, Christ is said, I'm in heaven. There's going to come a point where I'm going to come, and I'm going to receive you. I'm going to take you up to myself. Then look at 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. You'll see it on the screen. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. Uh, Paul was... What's interesting about this, Paul wasn't with the the church at Thessalonica for very long, but it's apparent that he taught the Thessalonians about the rapture and the second coming of Christ. He taught them about these things, of end-time things. We don't think of eschatology as discipleship 101, but really it was included in Paul's instruction to this church as they were early in their faith walk. He taught them about end times things. But it appears that after he left, there came in another group of people that had stirred up some confusion as it pertained to the second coming of Christ. There were even those, they were going through severe persecution, and it seems as though there were some who were indicating that the persecution you're enduring is the tribulation. And they were fearful. We've missed it. We've missed the coming of Christ. And they were also worried about people who had already died. What happens to them Do they not get raptured bodies? What happens with them when we die? What what happens with Christ's return? So there's confusion. And Paul tells them in verse uh, 13, he tells them, I'm writing these things so you won't be uninformed. He goes, I want you to have clarity on these issues. I want you to understand them. And so look at what he says in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And I love that end. We don't have time to go into a whole lot of depth of this. I love, These are words that are intended to be comfort. It's hard for me to understand how telling them get ready. You're about to go through some really tri- troubling times in the tribulation would be comforting to them. Or that you're going to go through these, these things you're going to be raptured out at the end. That's a struggle for me. But these are written as a word of comfort to them. In Paul here, uh, he says that the dead in Christ will rise first. And then the believers, those who remain, will be caught up together with them. The word caught up in the Greek is the word harpazo. It means to snatch. It means to grasp. It's the same word that's used in Philippians chapter 2 when it talks of Jesus who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, snatched, clung to. Um, it's the same word that's used in Acts chapter 8. You remember when Philip, after the baptism of Ethiopia, he's caught up, remember? Uh, the, the, he's caught up from Gaza and he goes to Caesarea. He's caught up, it says. And it's the same word that's used of Paul in Corinthians when he is caught up to the third heaven. So it means to, to be caught up in the Vulgate, because many people wonder, where do we get the word rapture? Some will even tell you the rapture is not in the Bible. I, you know, it's in the Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible. It's the word Uh, raptoro, I'm not a big Latin person so somebody's probably going to correct me on these things as I tried to study this again this week but it's raptoro in the Latin which is the word from which we get what? Rapture. Rapture. So the church is caught up here Uh, they're raptured and and so let me just kind of summarize this, the picture that Paul paints here is that if you die now so if you died today, your spirit would go to be with the Lord what does scripture say? To be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. You remember the thief on the cross, he died, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. So if you die today, your spirit goes to be with the Lord, your body goes into the ground, and your salvation will be completed at the rapture when your body comes forth from the ground to be reunited with your spirit, and God completely redeems you, body body soul, and spirit. Isn't that good? Powerful picture. And then I want you to turn to one final passage, 1 Corinthians 15.50. Again, it'll be on the screen. Jot it down. 1 Corinthians 15.50. There were some folks uh, in Corinth that didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. The idea was that the body's bad, the flesh is evil, and so there's no place for our evil fleshly bodies to be in heaven. And Paul says, no, sir. He writes to correct that issue, that your body is good. He made it, and God's going to change it. God's going to transform our body. it will be redeemed. So look in verse 50. It says, now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep. What does that mean, that we will not all sleep? It means there's going to be some people, there's going to be a generation of Christians who are alive when the rapture occurs. Wouldn't you like to be a part of that group to get heaven without dying? You know, they're saying we all want to go to heaven, we just don't like the dying part. Well, that group, there'll be a group, a generation of Christians who will be around who will not sleep, they will not die. And it says we'll not all sleep, but we'll all be changed in a moment. The Greek word's adamos. It's the word for which we get "Adam." I mean, it's almost undividable. It's, a, it's an instant, in a moment, in a nanosecond, the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. And notice, there's some people who say, well, the last trumpet, um, if you're saying this is at the rapture and then there's the, the second coming of Christ, how could this be the last? Listen, this will be the last trumpet for living Christians here on earth. It'll be the last trumpet for them. At the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperish- imperishable and we will be changed. So Paul is just simplifying this. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. We'll be transformed. We'll receive new glorified bodies. You remember Paul said to the Philippians, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble estate into conformity with the body of his glory. We'll get glorified bodies. And when will it occur? It'll occur in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that there's gonna come a generation of believers who, in a split second, they're gonna get a glimpse of Jesus, the trump will be set will sound, they'll be caught up, and they'll be transformed. Now, I bring up all these things to say it, we may not all agree on when this occurs, but don't let anybody tell you that the idea of a rapture is unbiblical. We may not agree exactly when it occurs. But don't let anybody tell you the idea of a rapture is unbiblical. You know, there's some who believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. There's some who believe in a mid-tribulational, some are what they would call a pre-wrath or a post-tribulational rapture. Which most often, when they're talking about post-tribulation, it's almost a simultaneous rapture and coming of Christ. But regardless of where you stand, I believe it's hard to disagree with the fact that the rapture is biblical. So then, the question needs to be, when does it occur? And again, I'm going to share with you where I land on this issue. Look back to Revelation 4, 1 through 4. Revelation 4, 1 through 4. Revelation 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me, said, Come up here. And I will show you what must take place after these things. You'll notice that, that verse at the beginning of verse 1. It's also at the end. It's repeated twice. It's after these things. After these things. And the question is, after what things? Well, what has, and, and listen, when I study this stuff, it's why I struggle with symbolic interpretation of these things. Because it get way too confusing for me. If I'm going to know it and understand it, it better be really, really simple. I'm a simpleton. After what things? Well, what has immediately preceded this? What did we just get done studying? The seven letters to the seven churches. So what are the after these things? After these things is after the seven letters or after the church age. So in chapter four, we're beginning a transition from the church age to the things that will come after these things, meaning what's gonna come next? The tribulation. What comes at the end of the tribulation? The tribulation coming of Christ, what comes after that? The millennial kingdom. What comes after that? The eternal state. In fact, Revelation 119, I really believe, gives you a breakdown of the book. It gives you the outline of the book. He's told, John is told, write down the things that are, that's chapter one, the vision that he got of Christ. The things which are... Uh, The the things which are, uh, let me get this right. (laughs) Write down the things that you've seen, that's chapter one. The things which are, that's chapters two through three. That's the seven letters to the seven churches. And the things which will take place after these things, that's chapter six through 22, the tribulation, the second coming of Christ, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. And so John hears after these things, transition is occurring, and he sees an open door into heaven and a voice saying, come up here. And in verse two, Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. So a door is opened into heaven, and John is taken into the very presence of God. And he's allowed to see in advance what is coming. John is allowed to see future events before they actually take place. He's in the spirit, in the presence of God. And I don't think this is some mystical place. I think he is transported spiritually into the very real presence of God. And he sees the throne of God fixed. It's standing. And he sees God himself. And in verse 3, it says he was sitting like a jasper stone and, and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. So God, God's appearance, it says here, was like jasper and sardius stones. And what does that mean? Well, the high priest had uh, on his breastplate, he had the 12 stones of Israel, one stone for each tribe. He had those stones on his breastplate as a kind of a, a representation of the nation as he would go in before the presence of God. And the very first stone was what? It was a jasper stone for that first tribe, which was the tribe of. Reuben. And then the last stone representing the last tribe of Israel was what? It was a Sardius stone representing the tribe of Benjamin. So here he has the first and the last and these two stones in the Jasper and Sardius stones. And I believe that these two stones demonstrate God's faithfulness to his covenantal people, the nation of Israel. Listen, after chapter four, moving forward, we do not see the church mentioned again until chapter 19. You know what's so interesting about this in the first two chapters or chapters two and three, the church is mentioned 19 times. And you would expect moving forward from there, you're going to see the church a whole lot. And then all of a sudden, after chapter four, you don't see them again. Remember, the God's salvation history, the gospel was to who first? It was to the Jew first, wasn't it? You know, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first and then for the Greek. When Jesus commissions the disciples in Acts 1.8, what does he say? You'll be my witnesses where? Jerusalem. It starts in Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, the remotest parts of the world. God's overarching plan, Jew first and then the Gentile. And God took the gospel to the Jewish nation and what did they do? They rejected. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected their king. And in Acts chapter 9, God turns his attention to who? The Gentiles. Even though Paul, when he would go into cities start churches, he would always start where? In the synagogue. Jew first, Greek. But Acts chapter 9 on, God's focus becomes who? It becomes the Gentiles. It becomes the building up of what? The church. And for the last 20 centuries, what have we seen? We've seen God building up His church, we would call it the church age. And God has has, um, kind of set the nation of Israel to the side. He's made himself known to Israel. He's made them jealous by means of the church. It's pretty powerful. God has put his name on us, Gentiles. He's given us the covenantal promise of the Spirit. He's given us Israel's Messiah. He's made us a kingdom of priests. And according to Paul in Romans chapter 11, he's done this to make the Jew jealous But is God done with the nation of Israel? No. God is not done with Israel. He made promises to Israel, and God always keeps his promises. But isn't this beautiful? I love this. At the point of transition, so here we are in chapter 4, we're transitioning from the church age to the tribulation, a very dark and difficult time, a time known as the time of Jacob's struggle, the, the 70th week of Daniel. But as they transition, this, as the nation transitioned into this difficult time, God is pictured here as the God of his covenantal people. He's demonstrating his faithfulness to my covenantal people, the nation of Israel. And there's also a rainbow. You see a rainbow here pictured with God. You remember after the flood? Why did God give the rainbow as a sign? to remind them that he would not destroy the earth again by means of a flood. He had to give them a sign. If they didn't, they would always live in fear, wouldn't they? Every time they saw a cloud roll up in the sky and water begin to fall, what would they have thought? We better build a boat because we're all about to die. And God gave them a rainbow to remind them of his faithfulness, to remind them of his mercy What a powerful picture, again, as the nation of Israel begins to go into this dark time of tribulation, God pictures himself with a rainbow to remind Israel, even my judgments do not negate my purposes and my promises, that you can trust me, I am faithful. And then in verse 4, we see a group of people that we've not seen before. It says around the throne there were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. 24 elders here and we're given some indicators. Again, I'm a simpleton. I just look at this. What do we see here? They're described in three ways. They're sitting on thrones and then what else? They got white garments and then what else? They got golden crowns on their heads. Who did we just get done studying for seven weeks and every time they were given the promise that if they overcame, they were given the opportunity to do what? To sit on thrones, to be clothed in white garments, and to have a Stephanos, a crown. In my estimation... This is referring to 24 elders representing the church. The only other time we see 24 mentioned in Scripture, 1 Chronicles 24, when the priests are divided into 24 orders. What are we referred to in the New Testament by Paul? We are a kingdom of priests. We're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession. I believe these 24 elders that are represented here demonstrate the church gathered in God's presence. And after this, the church is not mentioned. And for this reason, I believe the rapture of the church occurs prior to the tribulation. Why? Because we see the church here gathered in God's presence prior to the tribulation. And from this point forward until the return of Christ in chapter 19, the church is not mentioned again. There's many other reasons uh, that I tend towards this view, but let me give you a few here at the end. So I've, we've looked at is the rapture biblical? When does it occur? I've told you when I believe it occurs. Why would there need to be a rapture? That's the final point. God doesn't do anything without a purpose, does he? Everything he does is purposeful. There's many more reasons than these two that I want to highlight here, but these are the two things that kind of compel me towards a pre-tribulational rapture view. Number one, the primary reason that drives me towards this is that I believe that the church and the Israel are distinct. The church and Israel are distinct. As much as I've tried, I cannot agree with, with replacement theology. I can't do it. I've tried. I've read it. There are great men of God that I respect who hold that view, but I can't do it. Um, According to Romans 11, God is not done with Israel. He has made promises to the nation that he will fulfill. As you've heard me say before as we studied Daniel, the church is kind of this gap. It's this parenthesis. It's, it's the mystery as Paul talks about it in Ephesians. It's the mystery of God's salvation during a time of blindness of Israel until they, The Scripture says, until they look upon him whom they pierced. And our job right now as a church is, is to do What? To call Israel to jealousy that they might believe. Um, We got a good example of this in our church. A couple by the name of Jeff and Elaine Boffman. Jeff, a Gentile, loved Jesus, had a relationship with Christ. Elaine, a Jew, grew jealous of his relationship with God through faith in Christ. And through his testimony and her jealousy, she came to believe in Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. And she's actually written a book on it recently that tells you all about it powerful picture now the second reason that drives me towards this is the tribulation is the outpouring of God's wrath on an unbelieving world that's rejected him so it's the renewal of God's purposes we're going to see this in tribulation is going to be the renewal of God's activity with this nation of Israel but secondly it's the outpouring of God's wrath and judgment on a world that's rejected him the tribulation contains we're going to see this as we move through it contains three series of God's judgment of wrath on the world you're going to have the seals they begin in chapter 6 there's going to be war, famine. There's going to be a death of a quarter of all the earth. I mean, you talk about a horrible depiction. Then you move into trumpets. You got the hail and fire mixed with blood. The result is that one-third of the trees and grass are burned up. One-third of the sea becomes like blood, killing one-third of the creatures in the sea. And then it gets worse. Demons arise to torment men, and men will attempt to die. They'll attempt to commit suicide, but they can't. And then you have the bowls, these boils that are poured out and appear on people, and all fresh water is turned to blood, men will be scorched with fire, there'll be total darkness, 100-pound hailstones will fall from the sky, And that's just a brief overview of what awaits those who will go through the tribulation. I only say this because, listen, you read this stuff, and you realize pretty quickly, the tribulation period is unlike anything we've ever experienced here on Earth. It's not like a really bad storm. It's not just like a bad hurricane. It's not even like the, the persecutions, the great persecution that we've seen here on earth. I believe because it's the wrath and judgment of God. I, I, there are so many people when I deal with this, and this is something that I struggled with initially, when I began to say these things. Is people will say, "Well, well, why would God keep us from persecution?" Why would God even keep us from tribulation? Because God has never spared his people from persecution. And that's true. In fact, Scripture says all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be what? They'll be persecuted. God's never spared his people from persecution. But folks, in my opinion, the tribulation is not persecution. It's the judgment and wrath of God upon an unbelieving world that's rejected him. And from what I see in Scripture... The church is not destined for wrath. Now, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, For God is not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And do we have pictures in the scripture of God removing his people prior to bringing wrath and judgment? Certainly we do. We see this with Noah. We just mentioned him with the rainbow. But God brings judgment upon the earth, not just persecution, not just tribulation. He brings judgment, but before he does, he removes Noah. You remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God pours out judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but he can't pour out his judgment until what? Until Lot is removed. You remember Jericho, a lady by the name of Rahab who's a true believer in God? Before God brings judgment on Jericho, what does he do? he got to get Rahab out. We have pictures of this throughout Scripture. I just kind of wrote down just to summarize. If you want to know where I stand, I thought these are, I tried to summarize it this week as best I could. Number one, I believe in the rapture of the church. I believe that after he has taken out his people, he'll pour out his judgment on an unbelieving world that has rejected him. I believe that in the tribulation period, God will again, to work with his covenantal people, Israel. I believe that God has made promises to a literal nation called Israel and he will fulfill his promises to that nation. I believe that one day Christ will come again on the clouds and his bride, the church, will return with him to rule and reign in a literal kingdom here on this earth. The earth is his and one day he'll have it back. This is what I believe. Now... Some of you are here and you say, I don't agree with all that. You may stand a little differently on some of these things. But listen, we all need to agree on one thing. We can disagree. I'll just tell you, not all of our pastoral team agrees on all these things. But here's where we must agree. One day Christ is coming back. Rest assured that. He is coming back. And there will be a real and there will be an eternal judgment. And there are some who are going to be separated from God forever in a place called hell and there will be some who are brought unto God in a place called heaven where they will be with Christ forever. And the determining factor as to which eternal destination you will experience is not what church you went to. It's not church membership it's not how often you went to church, it's not how much you gave, it's not how many good works you did. The determining factor will be whether or not you have bent the knee and trusted in the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, King Jesus, as your only means of salvation. He is your only hope. There is judgment, there is wrath coming. We're either going to exit out before the wrath and judgment comes or we'll we'll exit out at some point. But we're going to exit out at some point and one day there's going to be eternal judgment that will come. And in light of that knowledge, I'll tell you this. I implore you today, if you don't know Jesus, bend the knee and trust him today. In Psalm 2, the psalmist writes, Take warning, take heed, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with trembling, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. As far as I can tell, all this world is waiting on is a word from God. And you're not guaranteed another day. I implore you today, if you don't know Christ, trust Jesus. Bend the knee. Believe in him alone. Now, for those of us that are here that do know Christ, here's my encouragement to all of us. We need to start living our lives knowing that Christ could return at any moment. You know, one of the things that I've experienced in our faith tonight, if we're having somebody over to the house... Before they arrive, what do we do? As best we can, what are we doing? Y'all do it too. You try to get that house ready, don't you? Just a common guest, but you try to get that house ready. Listen, one day the King of Kings is coming. My question to you this morning is your house ready? That's what Paul said in Titus chapter 2. He says, "...the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to do what? To und- deny all ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus." He's saying the grace of God has appeared and we know he's returning and this challenges us and encourages us to live righteous and holy lives, to be bold in our proclamation of Christ so that when Christ returns, he'll find us faithful to the task that he gave us to do. My encouragement to those of us who know Christ is let's get our house ready. And listen, if there's somebody in your life that you've been waiting on a moment to share Jesus with them, Make today the day. You're not guaranteed another moment, neither am I. I don't know exactly when Christ is going to turn, but I know we're closer today than we were yesterday. The time is now. The fields are white for harvest. You know when Jesus said that fields are white for harvest? When the fields were white, it meant the wheat was ready. And guess what they had? They only had a little window of opportunity. When my mom was little, living on a farm down in Oklahoma, when it was time to bring the crops in, they got out of school. They put down everything. The only thing that was important in that moment was getting that crop in because you only had a limited amount of time to get it in. Listen, we got a limited amount of time here. So regardless of where you stand on some of these issues about post-trib, pre-trib, let's get busy knowing Christ's coming back. And if you don't know him, bend the knee today do we have a hymn we got a song this is the one that came to my mind man of sorrows what a name for the son of god who came ruined sinners to reclaim hallelujah what a savior bearing shame and scoffing rude in my place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a savior Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven, exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring. Then anew, this song we'll sing. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Father, we thank you for the salvation that you have provided in your son, Jesus Christ. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning, maybe watching online right now, they know they don't have a relationship with you. I pray that more than anything else they've heard today, they would know that one day you're coming back and there's gonna be a judgment. And your judgment's not gonna be about lining them up and comparing them to other people. You're gonna judge them on the basis of your holiness and your law. And in that moment, when they stand in your presence, it'll be apparent that they're a sinner, that they're spiritually bankrupt, that they lack what they need to be in your presence. God, I pray that they wouldn't face that day without having prepared their heart by bending the knee to Christ, repenting of their sin, turning away from their sin, and trusting in Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior. God, I pray that they would trust in you today. Hallelujah, what a Savior. I pray that they would know your salvation today. God, for those of us that do know you, Lord, I pray that we would draw comfort from these things. But Lord, I pray that knowing of your return you've told us to count the patience of God as salvation that we got work to do as long as you tarry we have work to do I pray that God you would make us a people of holiness and godliness and it would lend credibility to the gospel message we proclaim and then God when you give us the opportunities I pray that we'd be bold to speak the name of Jesus so that more might come to know him so that they might know his salvation, not his judgment, his wrath. Lord, make us faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me this morning as we give you an opportunity to respond in whatever way Christ might be leading on your heart. Maybe you have questions about salvation, how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I'll be here at the front. Other pastors will be here. We'd love to talk with you. Maybe you'd like to unite with our church family. Say, I want to join. You've been through our membership class. You'd like to join this morning. Again, the pastors will be here at the front. We'd love to receive you. If you want to pray, the altar's open. The pastors are here. This is your time. You'll never regret obeying Jesus. So you respond as we sing.